0: So, guys, welcome back to the Unreasonable Grounds podcast. This is going to be a uh, it's going to be a four part series, mini series on the road back to the road. Uh, as you guys know from the your experience and listening to the podcast if this is first time joining the podcast well thank you so much for checking us out um, we're basically we are a first responders podcast by first responders for first responders our job is our job is basically to be able to uh, showcase the lighter side of this particular job this job career profession calling whatever you want to call it and uh, just try to shed a little bit of uh, light humor um, <clears throat> Hobbies and so on and so forth, uh, as well as we get into cop cars and movies and the best cop TV shows and whatever it might be we want to talk about at the time. We have a cop car challenge we're also involved with. Uh, but today, like I said, this is going to be part one of the uh, the road back to the road. And as I was saying earlier, in uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, what really spurred this on and this particular series, the road back to the sorry, the road back to the road. Um, if anybody's unfamiliar with, it, especially those that are getting into the podcast and getting into first responder work, the road, as we call it, is the job is being in a bubble or call a bubble being in a PC or a police vehicle, police cruiser, whatever you want to call it, patrol vehicle, um, whatever word and terminology you use, but rolling on the road, taking calls and helping people, uh, because in the, in the grand essence of things, that is the job. The job is to go and help others. Uh, in their time of need. So when we talk about the road back to the road, obviously, uh, if you guys were following the Instagram page, and I was trying to do my best to be able to kind of let people know what was going on while I was in in quarantine last week, um, I spent five days uh, in the hospital it, uh, actually it was six days of the hospital at, uh, Nanaimo Regional General Hospital here on Vancouver Island, um, after a medical emergency that took place, uh, back on, oh geez, I wrote down a whole bunch of notes for this too, but, uh, on the 28th of October, uh, 2022, obviously today is, uh, thankfully the 10th day of November, tomorrow's Remembrance Day, but, uh, yeah, we're 12 days, 13 days away from the incident, whatever it was, um, but yeah, so there, there was an incident that took place and um, what, like I said, what spurred this whole thing on was what happens for law enforcement officers when they go and have a medical emergency and on the job medical emergency, off the job medical emergency and then what happens to them during that time and then what happens uh, post the actual medical emergency. So you have your prognosis, and you have your injury and you have your doctors and, and physicians and specialists assisting you. But then also the finer minutia of the whole thing where it comes down to home life when it comes to not being able to be around your watchmates, your colleagues and, you know, whatever it might be and, and and the other people that you work with and being around the job that you love so much and that you're called to every single day and every single shift that you put that uniform on. What happens then? And that's the interesting point here because what we do is we feel sadly... As officers and experienced officers in uh, law enforcement in Canada, North America, all across the world. And we know that it's a a greater problem, but we do fail each other in the sense that we don't do enough to be able to support those individuals that are off and, and dealing with these. And maybe those individuals don't have the experience enough to be able to know that what they're going through when it comes to mental health issues, physical, obviously, ailments... And the support wise, they maybe they don't have the support to be able to go through and have somebody there. Like I'm very lucky to have a family and my wife and my kids have been absolutely tremendous. My colleagues have been absolutely stellar and out of this world uh, when it comes to this whole thing that's happened. But sometimes people don't have that. So this might be a a bit of an insight into what actually happens to officers during that time. So what we're going to end up doing, like I said, is going to be a four-part series and the first one is going to be the incident. So that's tonight It's going to be part one. Uh, obviously, I'm recording this uh, for the podcast. I'm going to be putting it out as the mini series as well. Um, hopefully, there's not very much editing to do here. So I can just put it out quick, quickly. Uh, the second one is going to be in a few days and it's going to be off-duty sick. So ODS, those in the RCMP like myself, that's the terminology we use is ODS or off-duty sick. And then now what? Like what, what now once you're off-duty, now what happens kind of deal. Uh, the third part is going to be the mental game, and that's being away from the watch, being away from your job, being away from your unit, being away from the career that you fought so hard to get into, and being away from that and, uh, what that really means and how that can play on the mental health of those around us and, and those that you work with and, and the, your family, your, your loved ones, and, and more importantly as well too, just yourself, like how that really affects you, Um uh, and then the fourth one is going to be the road to full recovery. So we're going to talk about rehab therapy, where, whether it be uh, you're going through physiotherapy, whether you're going through these uh, psychological services, whatever it might be, uh, whether it be a physical or mental health injury, uh, you know, occupational stress injury, whatever it might be, whatever you're going through and, and what that really looks like right? Not everybody's had a, a medical emergency happen before. Not everybody's had an injury before. So it's really interesting to be able to get into that process. And and obviously, as a part of that, the road to full recovery is going to be the graduated return to work, right? So that's going to be a big one there as well, too. And we'll talk about what that actually looks like. In my particular case, I've had quite a bit of experience with workplace injuries and injuries off duty that have put me in, and sidelined me, so to speak, uh, from the job. And it's difficult. It really is. It. It's hard. It's sometimes it's 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 something you can't help. Sometimes it's an injury. It's either in an arrest, in a, in a car accident at work, or, you know, if it's a, an injury from running after somebody or you know whatever it might be. Especially in our p- particular profession as first responders, I mean, it, it takes a real toll on the body. And then on top of that, we also have other things such as obviously mental health and we're dealing with those as well. So um, obviously we we start looking at that process. We'll start going through what that looks like in the return to actually getting back to the road. And uh, I think it's going to be interesting to say the least. But uh, I think it's about time we get started on the actual uh, the incident itself. And I can kind of explain uh, what happened uh, when this whole thing went down now. Obviously, as you guys have, you're lucky enough to be able to do this. Uh, We can do this live, obviously, right here. And uh, I have the opportunity to make some notes so that I don't forget anything. Um, It's actually been quite an interesting experience to be able to write down kind of what happened. Um, Because, again, it it literally scared the living crap out of me. Uh, It scared the crap out of my family. It scared the crap out of my neighbors. (laughs) It scared the crap out of uh, my colleagues, I think that uh, once they found out I was in hospital and, and for several days trying to figure out what was going on. So, um, we're going to get to that here real shortly. Okay. So let's get into it here. Uh, the incident. So, all right, I- I'll do a little bit of a lead up here, uh, so I can explain this thing. So on the 28th, so it would be the 25th, I was working day shift, um, had a bit of a rough shift, had a bit of a rough call, uh, that I was dealing with a few things. Uh, stress was like at a Literally at like a 99 out of 100. Um, I, I can't think imagine anything worse than, than dealing with a particular incident that I was having to deal with, um, just stress wise and, and and mental health wise. And I, I wasn't feeling awesome already. I wasn't feeling very good. And leading up to that, the next day I ended up waking up with like chills and like a fever. And so I decided, I'm like, you know what? I'm affectionately known on my watch, that Sea Watch in Nanaimo um you know that's that's the girls and boys on that team are absolutely family to me um so I ended up uh having this fever so I ended up taking the day off but it's, sorry like I said I'm affectionately known as Typhoid Thompson um I usually come to work and I, I push it I I I don't like taking time off I'm 100% a company man I just I show up I do the job and uh, you know what if I'm not feeling awesome oh, I don't know how many times I've thrown up on duty and I just keep going Um, so, you know, it is absolutely what it is when it comes to that, but I took the day off and I said, you know what, screw it. We got COVID. We have all the rest of these things going on. Um, why would I, why would I put everybody at risk, especially if I'm not feeling awesome. So I I took a day off, uh, the next morning I ended up waking up and I was like, ah, you know what, maybe I'm feeling a little bit better. Um, maybe it's going to be okay. Um, I, I might be okay so I, I got up and I like I said I hate taking days off I threw my uniform in the back of my car I went to go drive in and all of a sudden I just like got hit with this absolute wall of just nausea and I was like oh man I can't I can't get into work today it's just it's just not gonna happen and and Maris my wife was doing her best to be like hey you know maybe you should stay home like maybe you should call in okay. So I decided, I was like, all right, let's do that then. So I got out to the car and I came back and I was like, you know what? No, it's not happening. So I took the day off as well. So I took the day off, I I rested, I stayed home, I did all everything. And then uh, later on the day, uh, after, you know, I got my kids and and whatever from school and and just trying to, you know, isolate myself and stay all the rest of that, um, I ended up coming home and I I remember coming down to the desk and I was here in the the podcasting area, which is affectionately my desk in my office um, in our garage, in the grounds garage as we still call it. Um, yeah, so I, I ended up sitting at the desk and I was working on, uh, another podcast logo and I'm always working on that, always trying to improve the podcast logo and, and the branding and, and, trying to do what we absolutely can. So we can bring as much, uh, to first responders and, and just put it out there. We all know a good brand can go and get better length and, and get some more eyes on it to be able to get more first responders on the lighter side of things and keep everybody working, keep everybody happy and, 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 you know, good positive mental health, uh, practices out there so I'm doing that and I'm just kind of sitting there and immediately as I'm sitting there I can feel like I'm just kind of like getting flush and I'm like ah you know I'm just not still feeling amazing so I think I think I'll be okay though and then I remember my arms and my legs and everything just went absolutely numb and I couldn't feel anything anymore and my eyes, I remember looking at the image that was on the screen, and then my eyes rolled into the back of my head, and I don't know, I i, I guess I was out, I, I, have, I have no idea. I know my son was practicing his piano at the time, and when I kind of came back too, because I was alone in the garage, and I was kind of, kind of back into, like, being able to see and everything, and And immediately uh, my son wasn't playing piano anymore. So I have no idea how long I was out for, Um, but you know, it could have been a minute, could have been 30 seconds, could have been a minute. I I really don't know how long that was, but immediately my eyes were this shooting right, just to the right, just, I couldn't stop them from going to the right. And I was like, whoa, what the hell is this? What the hell is going on? Like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I remember thinking, whoa, 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 like this, this isn't good. And I couldn't keep my eyes open. I couldn't do anything whatsoever to keep my eyes open. And it just uncontrollably moving to the right. And that's when the helicopter hit. And it was just like the spins and spins and spins. And it was going so fast that I couldn't catch up. And the only thing that I can equate it to is, and you know, some people have had dizzy spells in the past, but the only thing I could equate it to was... If you got put on a merry-go-round and it got hooked up to a Dodge Charger or some souped-up Lamborghini and all the rest of that, and they hooked a chain up to it and they just sat there and spun that thing around and then ripped it and took off, and you just were just wheeling around and spinning around on this merry-go-round, and then you just got thrown off, and that feeling that you would get from falling off that merry-go-round—you're just going around and around and around and around. Well, that was, you know, that times a hundred to me what it felt like. And I knew something was wrong because I couldn't feel anything properly, and I couldn't couldn't touch things, and I I couldn't like I just didn't know what was going on. So I ended up yelling for my my ten year old, soon to be eleven year old daughter, and I yelled for Abby, and I and I just said I I need help, and she you know rushed over and she came over to help me, and immediately she was doing amazing. She was like my she's my hero. She is. Like, I just, I couldn't believe how fast she came and how calm she was and just whatever I needed, she was, she was there to help me. And, and it's, it's an incre- pretty incredible feeling. And I, I've, and I've thought very deeply on this since it happened. So yeah, so I ended up getting that and Abby and I was sitting in my chair still and, and Abby came over and she helped me. And I just said, hey, you got to get dad to the ground. I got to get to the ground I can't, I can't move. I can't get up. So I ended up falling down and, um, she helped me get over to the, kind of the center of the, the garage over near where our TV intersectional couch is and all the rest of that kind of like the movie viewing area. And I was on the ground and I just said, I'm like, Abby, I need, I need the phone and I, and I need you to call mom. And immediately while I was on the ground, um, I just started profusely sweating And it was like buckets and buckets and buckets. And it just felt like my, my, my shirt was soaked. I had a big hoodie on and I was just like, what the hell is going on? And this is different than anything I'd ever felt before in my entire life. I was like, this is, this is, something's bad. Something is wrong. I I need some help right now. But of course, because I'm a, I'm a police officer, I, I'm not dying. I'm, I'm in trouble. Like, I, I, I know that I'm in, in, in trouble. Like, I know that medically speaking, this is not good and my heart is racing and I can't really feel anything and I'm falling down. And I'm like, uh, okay, I'm, now I'm worried that A, I'm having a heart attack. I've had enough stress and issues and all the rest of that. But A, I'm having a heart attack or B, I'm having a stroke and I don't know any better and I, and I'm, I can't think straight. Be able to figure it out. So Abby, being my hero, she did something amazing. She went and grabbed my my phone, the the cordless phone, and and she gave me the phone, and and it was Maris, and I just said, I'm like Maris, something's bad, something bad's happening. I, I need you to because she was away at a at a meeting for her soccer association that she's on the board of, and I just said, I I, I need help, and I need help now. And she's like, okay, well, I'll come back and, you know, I'll take you to the the urgent care and the walk-in clinic and and do what, you know, what we can do. And I, and I, and I immediately, and I'm like, no, I think, I think it's more like, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. And I just remember saying it's bad. I I don't know what to do. And so Mare, she had to, she was coming back from someplace and she had finished up doing what she was doing. And then she ended up coming back and, and it was probably what felt like the longest 20 minutes of my entire life. But immediately after I hung up the phone, I like tried to lay down on my side and laying down on my side was an immediate trigger that immediately triggered. And, you know, if anybody are grossed out by this or whatever it might be, I'm sorry, but this is medically speaking, what happened is, uh, the best thing I can compare it to is the matrix. When Neo gets pulled out of the matrix and he, he's just not believing whatever he's seeing and he pops and that's what he has the guys around him. And he says, Oh, look out, he's going to pop. And it, I just absolutely popped. I just, I, everything came out. I threw up everywhere and I just, I, for probably a good five, 10 minutes, I could not stop heaving and throwing up. And I'm like, this is really bad because this is not normal. I don't feel this is good. This is going to get really, really bad, really, really fast. And eventually Mayor showed up and thankfully, and we ended up calling the ambulance and, uh, it was probably, I don't know, it felt like probably about half an hour, half an hour, 40 minutes. Eventually what ended up happening is that, uh, again, I couldn't move. I was on the ground. Every time I tried to move and try to get up, I just fell down again and I fell over. And then I, I was in like the, the downward dog position in, in, um, in like yoga for, oh God, probably what felt like an eternity because my feet were going numb like my hands were going numb. I was just, my head was going bad. And, and I'm like, if I rolled over, I threw up. If I went to the right, I threw up and I couldn't see it. I couldn't open my eyes. So this craziness was going on. All right. So what kind of happens from there? So the ambulance gets contacted and, and Mare's, you know, obviously quite concerned. The kids are quite worried, even though they're hearing me throw up and going, you in the background. So, you know, my kids are awesome. They're funny like that. And, uh, What ended up happening was, is basically the ambulance shows up, they, um, they show up and I remember being so embarrassed. I'm like, oh my God, a grown ass adult, you know, a 38 year old man, he's a cop and everybody knows he's a cop on the street, has to get carted out on an, on a stretcher at an ambulance. Um, I couldn't stand up, so I couldn't even get on the gurney and that stuff. Like they literally had to like help me onto the gurney and I I can remember they like lifted me up like I was a baby. Uh, because I couldn't move I was just my everything wasn't working so that was just absolutely insane and the paramedics and god I wish because I was all messed up and I, and I wasn't thinking right in that I wish I remembered their name it was a male and female and because I couldn't see and I didn't open my eyes for the entire experience I don't know what they look like um But one was a younger male, and and it sounded like maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, and one was a female. It probably sounded like she, again, late 20s or mid-30s, around there. And they were absolutely amazing. And the male paramedic that was was with me for the entire drive uh, from Parksville to Nanaimo, which is probably whatever, 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, um, was an absolute godsend. And and, and they did... uh, I can't even, it's, it's really difficult to, as a fellow first responder to really appreciate the work and, and the connection that, that my paramedic brothers and sisters on the job have and, and, and what they do for us and that they do for the public. They were absolutely incredible. Um, They kept me as calm as I possibly could be. I was literally freaking out in the back, just I I couldn't think straight and nothing was making any sense to me whatsoever. And I'm sitting, I know I'm like, how many times have I been in the back of an ambulance, especially for work. Like I I, I know what the the back of an ambulance sounds like. And I, and it's like one of those things where you're like, God, I I, I really need to get to the, to the hospital. But what they did was they they distracted me enough to get me there, to really get me there in in good time. So I, I, I can't say enough they did an incredible job they deserve medals from me i'll i'll make a medal for them because they deserve that from me and my family because they really helped me out in that sense so um and yeah and, and it is just there was they were so calm so on the way i felt every bump and every bump maybe throw up in the back of that that ambulance and i'm like great there's nothing worse than throwing up, in the, you know, just in general. Mayor knows I absolutely, I can't stand it. I throw up with my entire body, and it, and it's it's not pleasant at all, at all. Like, it's there's quiet throw-uppers, and there's, you know, people that throw up quite loudly, and, and it's quite visceral. And and this was that. There was nothing left in me, so I was just, like, dry heaving and, and trying to get through this because my body wasn't having it. So we get to NRGH, we get to the hospital and, and they get carted in and immediately, who do I hear? But my, one of my favorite, and I think they're rock stars and my two favorite paramedics in Nanaimo, um, Brian and Andy, um, from, they, they coincide with our watch. They are absolutely incredible. These two. And I heard Brian and again, I can't open my eyes. Because if I open my eyes, I kept darting off to the side and I, it kept making me throw up more and it kept causing these issues. So I just, I was like, I can't lift my arms. I can't lift my feet. Like I'm just, I'm an absolute invalid. I'm just, and I don't know what that means. So I'm freaking out. And Brian, and I just said, Brian, and I remember calling out cause I heard his voice and he's like, uh, who's that? And I could only imagine because my family, my kids, my wife said I looked like I was dead because I was over on my side. I couldn't move. And I, and I, all I was doing was heaving and all the rest of it. you know, poor mayor thought, literally said the thought that I was dead, you know, made my poor daughter cry, um, while she came to visit me that night, uh, because she thought dad was dead. Because like, I wasn't moving. I wasn't talking. I wasn't doing anything in that, that hospital, uh, bed, but I remember Brian, was absolutely incredible and I'm going to give that big son of a bitch a hug later uh, next time I see him but and immediately Brian said that's Mike and he's like he's a cop he's a cop here in town he's a good guy take care of him we needed, you know and I was like like, what does that mean? Like, how, like, you know what I mean? Like, that that's incredible. You know, you're you're there. I, I, I shoot the, the breeze with Brian all the time. I like him and Andy and I joke around with them all the time. And I love, I'll stop. Like, whatever I'm doing, I'll stop and talk to Brian and Andy uh, when they're in their bus and, and in between calls and at, at NRGH, at emergency or on scene at, at scenes. Like, we always do that type of thing. We always have that conversation. We always, like, I always check in with them. And here I am laying on a gurney laid out, can't do anything but all I can I can hear it I can hear them I can I can you know I can listen to them and they were doing their best to keep me calm because I was I was not in a good place so eventually uh they start they give me an IV they do we do everything and then first the first thing is because we nobody knows what's going on uh, yeah we just we just don't know what's going on the, the, medically speaking it's like when you go into the, like anybody that's been through the hospital and, and if it's a bit of a mystery, if it's a cut, you stop bleeding. If it's, you know, if it's a broken bone, okay, we set that we, we do whatever we have to do. But in this particular case, okay, you're, you're suffering from this like mystery illness, basically what's going on. And, you know, it's not going well and it's, it's quite frantic. So we don't really know what's going on. So initially the intake nurses who do an amazing job all day long, they, they are absolutely incredible at NRGH. Um, I can't say enough for all the staff at the hospital there that were amazing with me over those six days. And they were like, okay, well, let's get them up and let's move them over to, because we don't have any beds, let's get them moved over to a recliner over an emergency. And I remember the paramedics were like, no. They're like no he he's in trouble no we're not doing that because he can't he can't get up and the, I remember the nurse asking me and you know I, I don't blame her at all like how many times you go in there and you deal with people and it's like it's a it's a big show you know what I mean it's very much a big show and, and people are going through different situations or whatever they're going through and in this particular case what ended up happening was is that she came out and she was like hey listen um, you know and i remember hearing her talk and i was like oh i know this is what we're gonna get to and she's like yeah i'm sure he can just get up and walk over to a recliner i'm like the paramedics were like no he can't and she started lifting up my hands and my hand just like dropped and i don't even i i don't remember feeling that but i could tell that there was a bit of a shake and a shimmy on the gurney and i was like what the hell is going on I can't do anything like I can't do that I can't open my eyes I can't move my body I'm like what the hell is this so what ended up happening was as we end up going through the doctor comes over takes a quick look at me he's like no 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 let's get him in let's get him over to emerge and I got moved into a room and that's when all the tests started up we started checking obviously my heart rate and my blood pressure like we started going with the whole gamut of of everything we started getting some medication in me to try and ease off the the spinning and the pain and the headache and like the searing pain that i had in my head and it was like they were trying to figure that whole thing out and um it was just absolutely just chaos what felt like chaos for the better part of, you know, an hour and a half, two, three hours, because I ended up going in, probably got to the hospital about 4.30. Yeah, about 4.30, uh, 5 o'clock, and then all night long. It's like, I don't even remember the night. I barely, I, I barely like, again, because I had my eyes closed, all I remember was hearing things. And then I was in and out and in and out. And I don't know if they gave me medication for pain or whatever it was, but I kept going in and out. And, um, yeah, and, and so the next, I went in for, I think it was a CT that night. I went in for the MRI the next morning, uh, more tests, more tests, more tests. Um, and then, you know, they, they started trying to kind of figure out what was going on, what medically, and they knew kind of, you know, what the onset, the acute uh onset of what had happened which was i was going through some kind of neurological disorder or neurological event is what it was so being a neurological event how do you see that so what they were trying to do is they were trying to assess the actual event itself and they were going through the cts and mris to be able to tell a um, is it a stroke do we have any blood vessels that are are ruptured or whatever it might be in the brain um do we have an injury that could have possibly caused this. Uh, Do we have lesions that are putting pressure on whatever it might be uh, in particular parts of the brain? Um, I'm no stranger to concussions. I've had over a dozen concussions reported, like actually documented, Um, be it hockey growing up. You know, first concussion was at six and kind of went on from there. A a concussion sent me home from depot the very first time I was there. I've had an, any number of them, you know, a week before this incident, I ended up falling off a fence and whacking my head on something because I was dizzy for the rest of the night. had a headache, um, you know, when I was trying to help out a domestic violence situation there and report. So like it, it, there, there was something going on and I'm very familiar with that, but they were going over all these different procedures and tests to be able to determine and write things off. Like, okay, definitely not a stroke. So after the CT, they took a look at that and they were able to tell, yeah, hundred percent, not a stroke fantastic all the blood vessels are going are just fine there's no ruptures we're not seeing any telltale signs of of a stroke which man like after this whole thing like what a relief right so I was feeling okay this is possibly getting a little bit better news wise and and prognosis wise but at that point we still didn't know what was going on we're like okay well then what is this and I think it was like It wasn't the night of, it was the next morning. So it would have been Friday, Saturday morning at the hospital. Uh, The nurse comes in and she's like, you know what's kind of funny? And I'm like, again, because I can kind of talk, but I'm like, I don't know what's funny. And she's like, well, you have swine flu. You like you tested positive for H1N1. Like, get out of here. Haha, you're a comedian. Funny, right? Swine flu pick pig cop come on I'm like I, I can take a joke like everybody else She goes no I'm serious you're the only one in the hospital here that has h1n1 you know you're you're full quarantine and and we got to come in and you know burn off half a million uh, suits and masks and shields and all the rest of that because we don't want this particular virus uh, getting out and and spreading throughout the emergency ward and, and the hospital and so on and so forth that's the last thing we need um, during covid you know, post-COVID and and all the rest of that, Um, we don't don't need this H1N1 going around. And uh, immediately I was thinking like, how the hell did I get H1N1? You know, I wasn't feeling that bad. Like I was feeling kind of crummy, but seriously? So yeah, H1N1 and then tied in with, I was starting to lose some hearing about a month and a half ago. And given the symptoms and the fall and all the rest of that, what ended up happening, what they believed to be what's happening, was um, something very similar to vestibular neurosis. Um, And I hope I said that right. But um, what basically ended up happening was it was an inner ear uh, issue. Obviously, everybody's aware that inside the inner ear and the, the, uh, the eardrum, and just past that, there's some small chrysalis that are inside that tell you, tell the brain, um, where you are in the world, so to speak, for your equilibrium. And, and everybody knows this. Everybody knows that the inner ear is the biggest thing when it comes to balance and and keeping, you know, that keel, that even center, and, and keeping you walking upright. Um, and what it was is something had infected that particular area and caused this infection, um, and it caused possibly this attack that took place, um, and obviously made worse by um, likely a lowered immune system, uh because of the H1N1 and potentially because of uh injury um possibly from before as well to uh, again weakened the area so yeah so I ended up being in there and then it was just a matter of a guessing game and you know moving forward and and yeah so I ended up spending the rest of that day plus another day so I did 3 days in emerge and then they finally, they moved me upstairs for two days up to the third floor. And that was general, like, sort of like watch after you kind of level. And then I ended up moving up to the sixth floor for the last two days after doing more tests and more tests and more tests and, and having some fantastic visits from family, from my kids and my wife. And uh, she took me out in a wheelchair, and but I couldn't walk. I, I could not walk. Uh, you know, I eventually started taking a few steps without falling down, uh, while I was at the hospital and, and they wouldn't release me and discharge me until I could walk, uh, somewhat unsupported, at least, you know, what I call now wall rot wall walking, uh, to be able to get from point A to point B, uh, you know, washroom, kitchen, whatever it is to be able to take care of myself. So yeah, we ended up doing that. And then on the sixth day, um, or sorry, the fifth day, they ended up putting the halter monitor on me because they still hadn't written off the fact that maybe this was cardiovascular, maybe this was a a heart injury or, or whatever it is, an illness that's going on with my heart. And so they ended up doing a halter halter monitor, uh, which they basically shaved my chest down and and attached the probes to me yet again, and uh, and and sat there and for 24 hours it just. Like anybody that has any kind of cardiac incident, they do that and they they monitor you and, and people that go in for pacemakers, so on and so forth, end up having the same thing. A buddy of mine, Joss, ended up having it done, you know, a year and a half prior to this incident taking place and after an incident that he was involved in. And I was familiar with wearing the device, so I had to wear the device for 24 hours and then eventually uh, came the second day of November and that was a, a crazy day because my initial plans and we'd planned to set up and all the rest of that was to go to Richmond to be able to attend Constable Yang's funeral and regimental funeral. Um, and that's like, I, I, I remember telling everybody, I'm like, we got to go. Hey, we're going, we're going to grab the ferry in the morning. And we're going to jump over and we're going. And here I was, you know, stuck in a hospital trying to get there, wanting to be there, be able to be with everybody and to be able to pay my respects and to be able to get in the sea of red, just to do what we do as Mounties. That's what we do. We, we pay our respects that way. And it's very special. And I'm, I've been part of several, sadly, um, when it comes to these particular types of funerals, VUFAM was the first, uh, Constable VUFAM was the first funeral I'd ever been to regimental, uh, with the OPP in Wingham back in, oh geez, that was 2011, in 2010 somewhere around there and it's just what we do and here I am sitting there in a hospital with a stupid monitor attached attached to me and watching it from the tv and I was like I just all I wanted to do was be there with everybody and 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 help in any way I possibly could but stuck in the hospital there so what uh eventually later on that afternoon uh probably about two o'clock ended up getting discharged um And on came the uh, stroller. I called a stroller. On came the walker. I was wheelchaired out and then the walker started. And um, I needed a walker to be able to get me from point A and point B within the house. I was housebound, couldn't do anything, couldn't walk because I just fell down. And I was just like up against the walls. So yeah, so I ended up doing that. And then uh, that's kind of got to the point where I'm I am now and and thankfully I've thrown that walker out the door because I've had enough of it and I wasn't going to sit there and deal with that and uh and yeah so um in the end it's the doc has put me off for uh at least 60 days until January 1 uh for reassessment in a couple of weeks anyways I was at the doctor again today uh but that's the incident guys um it it it's miserable. It's not the worst, obviously. Jesus, uh, there's a there's a lot worse than all the rest of that in this world. Believe me, let me tell you. Uh, but as a first responder, um, you feel you feel useless. And yeah, there's 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 literally nothing worse. There there's nothing worse than than feeling useless. And and as as a first responder, it's your your job is is to be there. you at a basic level, your job you are a tool to get help and to be that help when people need you and they need someone. Law enforcement, you are called to take on these types of situations and you are called in to help others. And one of the hardest things, is that when you can't do that, you, you're 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 a hammer without a handle, you're you're a screwdriver without a, a, a head on it. You you're you feel like you feel like you're nothing, like you you're useless. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that for those in this profession, that truly it is truly a calling. And, it is, you, and you would do whatever you possibly could to be in uniform and be on the road for that time, that moment. It, it, when that time comes, you're there, and you will race as hard and fast as you possibly can to be able to be the one to be able to help that person in need, and it's what we do. It's what we do. Police officers, firefighters, paramedics, search and rescue tax, whatever the first responder profession that you're in, it's what we do. And when we can't be that, it is incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging and incredibly stressful to be able to figure out what to do with yourself and what value you have. And in the past, I've had I've done things, Where, you know, I've, I've, it's either I've apprehended somebody and, and I've, you know, I've kicked some like a, you know, the ground or like I've hurt myself or like I, I, I twisted something or I tripped over something or I, you know, I've been going to search warrants and I've had heavy breaching bags on my back and I've twisted back and done whatever, like stupid things where you end up injuring yourself and you're like, you know what, okay, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have fallen down. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have punched that rock. You know, like whatever it was, like those things you can mentally deal with. But when it's something that happens to you that you had zero power over, you're like, that's just fate. Fate feels like it's absolutely just kicked you right in the nuts. So that's kind of what I've been going through. Um, and like I said, this isn't the first time I've been off. This isn't the first time I've gone through this. And... It's certainly, I don't think it's going to be the last, I got another 10 years of this at least. And it's just, it gets harder and harder and harder and harder. It doesn't get, it certainly doesn't get easier. It gets harder to deal with. But this series is going to go over what that means and it's going to go over what the next steps are. And the next steps, like I said, are we're going to start talking about a couple of different things. We're going to start talking about what it, does it mean to be off-duty sick or ODS or whatever your agency calls it. We're going to go over the m- mental game. Like I said, we're talking about that. You're a tool without a handle. You're, you're a hammer without a handle. You know what I mean? It, it's just your, you, that feeling of uselessness. Um, we're going to talk about what, that how it affects your family how it affects, geez, my poor wife, she's been sitting here with me for a week in the house and, and I'm just, I can't drive right now because I just, I'm too dizzy and I can't get that nausea away. So like I'm stuck here basically at the mercy of, of other people helping me and I'm having to take a lot of help, believe me. Um, you know, even just sitting here in this chair, is, it's sometimes difficult and I already feel the room kind of spinning a little bit, but and we're going to deal with you know the road to recovery. Like, what does that look like? How long does it take? Like, what do we have to go through as law enforcement officers and, and first responders, and like the the goal of reaching out and getting to that final back to uniform, and and helping others, and, and you know just getting back to that and that graduated return to work. So we're going to start dealing with those guys. Um, But yeah, um, I'm going to do my best to document this on the website as well too, uh, www.theunreasonablegrounds.podcast.com. I'll do the best to keep up to date on on Instagram as well too, uh, but we're going to record the second session here in a couple of days and I'll try to get this out tonight and get it to you guys as soon as possible for the actual podcast uh, and we'll put it out pretty quick because I don't think I'll even need any uh, editing in this, we'll just put it straight out. Uh, but again, I want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you to the paramedics, thank you to my family, thank you to my, my wife, my daughter, my son. Thank you to the, the nursing staff at H. Thank you to the specialists, the neurologists, the, you know, the physiotherapists that helped me stand up. Like all the rest of those people, thank you so much to all of them. Um, guys, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody and, uh, we're going to do some good here. We're going to fill in some gaps for people that are aware or not aware, and we're going to have, uh, we're going to help each other out. Okay, thank you so much for listening. Again, it's Mike with the Unreasonable Grounds podcast. This has been the solo episode of the Road Back to the Road Um, in this first part one of the miniseries of what happened, the innocent prognosis. Thanks, guys.